Chapter 12, The Birth of Village Roots. Again, many things occurred within the five years from 2017 to 2022. And right around the time that I finally figured out the story of Elizabeth and the 11 orphans in my old house, and just before Thomas Ray started to introduce himself to me, as discussed in Chapter 8, a friend of mine called me up one day and asked me if I've ever been to the Rapids Theater in Niagara Falls, New York. If I was being honest, I had never heard anything about it. He goes on to tell me about how the Sci-Fi Channel had done paranormal shows there and it was known for being haunted, or in my words, spiritually active. This friend of mine actually knew the owner and suggested that we do an event there. I'm always open to trying new things, so I agreed. And within a few days of discussing the possibilities of hosting an event there, we reached out to the owner and asked if we would be welcome to do so. Without any hesitation, he granted us full access to this theater. Now initially, the idea for me anyways was to host a gallery night, right? Offer readings. As always, I wanted to relay as many messages as possible, and that was pretty much the extent of my idea. However, my friend had bigger plans. He suggested I go in with the intention to communicate with the well-known spirits the Sci-Fi Channel had done documentaries on. And I immediately had to explain to him, we could go there, and we could try. And if there are indeed spirits there, and they wanted to communicate, then that was fine. And if that was the case, we would move on from there. If not, we would just do a gallery night. And although he agreed, he questioned me and asked why I said it that way. I explained to him, you have to have a certain level of respect for spirit, just like you do anybody else. Clearly, at the time, earthbound spirit communication was something that I was in the process of learning within my own home. I went on to explain to him, you wouldn't want somebody just coming up in your home, wandering around, poking their nose in your personal space uninvited, would you? Of course not. Spirit of all forms, earthbound or not, was no different and I wanted to go about this in a very respectable way, as always. Besides, my goal had never been to prove that there was spirit, which is what most well-known paranormal teams are out to do. Even so, at the time, I was unsure if I was going to be able to go into this unfamiliar location I wasn't personally connected to and communicate with all these alleged spirits. Again, I didn't know if there was actually spirits there or if it was just a bunch of misinformation the media used for profit and hype. But I was going to find out. So I contacted the general manager, Eric, and we set up to do a private tour before the actual event took place. I kept thinking it would be very educational for people if there were indeed spirits there. Because the reality is we do indeed have spiritual activity that happens to us throughout our lifetimes. Unfortunately, because of the way the media advertises such things, generally such activity is associated with demons or scary movies, or it's promoted through anything connected to fear or fear-based propaganda. So when we have spiritual activity in our life, we become fearful because it's the only thing we have to compare it to. And because it's often unseen and we are uneducated, we don't know what it is and we don't understand it. However, when there's a logical explanation as to why certain things are going on and we can validate this through tangible documentation, it removes the fear of the unknown. It allows us an opportunity for awareness and enlightenment. So the more I thought about this, I thought this might actually be something that could be very helpful to people, not only to tell the stories if there are spirits that resided in the rapids, but also to explain to people why certain things happen there or in their own lives. When meeting with the general manager, I had no prior knowledge of anything associated to this theater to make sure that the information I was getting was indeed from them and not a biased opinion. Turns out the spirits there were more than willing to communicate and their story was beyond what anybody had ever uncovered all of which we were able to back with historical documentation. At that point, we decided to intertwine a dinner and a gallery night of readings along with the story of the spirits within the Rapids Theater. Now, this was the biggest event I had done at that point in my career, and I remember
remember being so nervous right before I stepped on stage. There was over 150 people there that came to be entertained and connected with their loved ones. Not to mention my whole family was front and center stage watching and supporting. I for sure thought I was going to trip on stage or fumble throughout my words. However, none of that happened. There's only one thing that I remember saying as I stepped on stage, and that was, this is the first time anybody has put a microphone in my hand. This could be dangerous. And the laughter echoed throughout the theater. As they say, the rest is history after that, because that set the tone for the rest of the evening. I relayed a message, and then I'd crack a joke, and I'd make everybody laugh. That was a massive aha moment for me, learning to just be myself, especially within the public eye. Throughout the years, there was always someone that wanted to interject their idea of who I was or how I should be, outside of my mother, that is. They would say things like, don't swear so much, Jen, you might offend somebody. But swearing's my thing, plus I'm a foul-mouthed bitch with a heart of gold, and I have one hell of a talent for communicating with the dead. Nonetheless, as I stated before, I wanted to tell the story of the spirits within the theater respectfully. So during the dinner portion of the show, I played myself made documentary for everyone to watch and their story goes a little something like this. 136 years ago at the turn of the 19th century in the year 1883 stood an old farmhouse. This farmhouse held a family of six consisting of a mother, father, two sons, and youngest daughter Isabel along with their family friend and loyal caregiver, Caroline. The family, like many within their time, lived and survived by utilizing local crops and agriculture as their skilled trade and way of providing. It was during this time when the Underground Railroad had reached its peak, and this farmhouse was one of many safe houses forming the unforgettable Underground Trails to Freedom. Risking their own freedom throughout the years, this family, including their help, Caroline, led those seeking freedom within the community through the tunnel that lay underneath the theater to this day. Although outwardly, Caroline was looked at as just the hired help, she in fact was a loved family member. Caroline's heart belonged to this family, and especially with their youngest daughter, Isabel. They tended to each other like sisters, always looking out for one another. Though Isabel was always running around more interested in playing than obeying her family's obligations and her responsibilities, it was Caroline that would chase after young Isabel, trying her best to keep her out of trouble. Late one night in the fall of 1883, while the coal was heating this farmhouse and the family slept, a fire broke out, claiming the lives of this noble and beautiful family, including the lives of beloved Caroline and Isabel. In 1921, 38 years after the farmhouse family perished, Main Street in Niagara Falls, New York started to transform from farmland to the business district that we know today. For the construction of Main Street, prisoners, then referred to as chain gangs, assisted in laying the foundation of Main Street. These laborers respectfully should be known as the men that helped build historic Niagara Falls, and we will get to why. With the completion of Main Street, there stood the famous Bellevue Theater and a small family-owned business called The Harmony Shop. That's when a man named Howard came along. Howard had faced many challenges throughout his life, including finding steady work due to his mental handicap. But just as everybody does, Howard had his own talents. He was great with people, and he was really good at fixing things. Despite his mental handicap, or better explained as a childlike disposition, he was a kind-hearted man with a family connection to the owner of the Harmony Shop. Howard was hired as the shop's handyman, 
Putting his talents to good use, Howard would mingle with customers, helping them as much as he could, becoming a very loved and accepted member of the community despite this handicap. One day, as Howard went about his day tending to his to-do list, in his early 40s, Howard suffered an aneurysm while working. Falling off the ladder that he stood on, he hit his head on the concrete beneath him, and yet again, the community suffered another great loss from a man named Howard they came to know and love. The infamous Bellevue Theater that stood alongside the Harmony Shop was only open for seven short years from 1921 to 1928. But then, in the early 1940s, the Bellevue Theater underwent construction and expanded its property, overtaking the once-beloved Harmony Shop, announcing a grand reopening to the public once again. This time, the theater was anticipating great success as a man named Walter was now the leading production manager of this new and improved Bellevue Theater, which was now owned by Paramount Pictures. Having such a grand title connected to the reopening opening of this luxurious structure gave Walter an edge over most businesses, and Walter was the type of man willing to do just about anything to maintain power, wealth, and social status within the community. To ensure his finances and power, Walter became affiliated with local racketeers, thus providing him and the theater the protection and financial stability he so desperately desired to maintain. This was beneficial for both Walter and the racketeering operation as one hand washed the other. Walter provided a secret room within the basement of the Bellevue Theater where the underground railroads once led to, and these groups of men or racketeers were in turn able to smuggle their boxes upon boxes of cigarettes and alcohol safely and securely well after the era of prohibition. It was the perfect setup, and in return, as Walter had planned, he was able to maintain his immunity and hierarchy within the community. Aside from managing the theater, Walter would fill his days obsessively monitoring everything, including the secret room, making sure all operations were a success. Meanwhile, front and center of the Bellevue Theater stage, there was an inspiring actress and opera singer who was preparing for her biggest debut yet. Her name was Alice. Alice started pursuing her singing and acting career in her preteens and was one of the most outspoken, charismatic, and inspiring women of her time. Everyone that knew her knew she was meant to be a star. But Alice was by no means meek or modest, and because of that, Alice and Walter would frequently clash. However, Walter saw dollar signs with Alice and the potential she had to fill the theater with her performances and fill Walter's pockets with cash. So tolerance is a word that comes to mind with Alice and Walter as they stayed away from each other as much as possible, focusing on their own hopes and dreams. As Alice was preparing for her big break, she soon found herself falling in love with a man named Michael. This was the expectation and ideal reality of their time. Be young, successful, to become married, to start a family of your own, and their love truly was one of a kind. But it defied all social constructs of their time and what we would know of their time to be. They would spend as much time together as possible planning their lives together, daydreaming, and showing their affection for one another. But soon the reality of this era, as the world battled towards overthrowing communism and dictatorship in Germany began, the United States commenced to deploy soldiers in preparation for World War II. Michael was one of the millions of men who was called to defend the lives of those within Germany that were desperately seeking freedom from such brutality and gruesome warfare. 
Still caught up in the whirlwind of their hopes and dreams, Alice held high hopes for his safe return and bravely saw Michael off. Remaining optimistic of his quick return, as Michael was deployed, Alice continued to prepare for her big debut, practicing on the balcony of the Bellevue Theater. But days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months, and as time passed, Alice became worrisome as she didn't receive any communication from Michael and his safety overseas. It wasn't long after that Alice noticed she wasn't feeling well. She was nauseous all times of the day, no appetite, and soon she realized she had all the symptoms of being pregnant. However, Alice decided to keep her pregnancy secret from her family and her friends, and especially the theater, hoping to surprise Michael upon his return. As time continued, one day, Alice received a letter from what she thought was sent by Michael. To her dismay, the letter stated that Michael's division was unaccounted for, and all those within were presumed deceased. Devastated by this turn of events, Alice quickly spiraled into a deep state of depression. All her hopes and dreams seemed to be ripped away from her in a single moment of time, and now she felt alone, unwed, a mother-to-be, and without any other options available to her. Desperate and determined to be with Michael, all of Alice's determination became focused on how she was going to be reunited with him. And as the big day approached and the requirements to attend rehearsals went on, Alice began to devise a different plan to rehearse, one that would reunite her with her beloved Michael. On the evening prior to the final rehearsal, as the cast members left and the theater began to close for the weekend, Alice requested some last-minute help from the stagehand. She asked them to prepare the ropes to pull the curtains so they were prepared for their last rehearsal. Alice patiently waited for the ropes to be set and for the theater to empty. She made her way to the dressing room, preparing for her final appearance on stage, wardrobe and all. Anxiously awaiting to be reunited with Michael, Alice proceeded to stage left. She climbed up to where the ropes were connected to the curtains, tied the ropes around her neck, and leaped. On the morning of the final rehearsal, two days had passed since Alice took her final appearance on stage. The theater members entered, shocked in disbelief, and screams echoed throughout the theater as they saw Alice on the floor of stage left. Tragically, the beautiful and talented upcoming actress had taken her own life without leaving any explanation to her family or to the theater. For such a horrendous and tragic event to occur in such a reputable establishment, Alice's choice to take her own life in such a theatrical way was the beginning of the end for the Bellevue Theater and for Walter. Although the theater did its best to cover up the gruesome details of this unexpected tragedy, the debut of the theater's upcoming play was canceled and the loss was suffered throughout. The theater's reputation and financial stability began to dwindle as a result, and Walter began to personally suffer the consequences of Alice's choice, as this had detrimental effects on his plans of success and hierarchy within the community. Walter and the theater's debts began to pile, and his alliance with the racketeers became all too much for Walter to handle. Walter began drinking alone in the theater into the wee hours of the morning, desperately trying to find a way to regain his power from such a devastating loss. To the racketeers, though, this was bad business, and they were unwilling to jeopardize their business for Walter or the theater. They had a way of dealing with people that knew too much and were unable to pay large amounts of money back then. Nearing the end of the Bellevue Theater in the late 1940s, the racketeers themselves devised a plan to call all debts equal. The time had come for Walter's debt to be paid, so one evening they invited Walter to the private room in the basement to play a game of cards, feeding him his favorite drink, bourbon on ice. Oblivious to the racketeer's betrayal, it was too late for Walter. He became sick from the cyanide poison that had been slipped in his drink, and to Walter's disbelief and inability to save himself, 
the same escape route that he provided for the racketeers became the exact route of Walter's disappearance. 38 years after the Bellevue Theater's first grand opening in the early 1960s, after so many losses had occurred within the community surrounding this historic building, the theater announced yet again another grand opening as the Rapids Theater we know today. Today, Miss Caroline's spirit will quietly stroll through the tunnels beneath the theater. While Isabel can be felt moving quickly behind you on the theater stage, she'll slam bathroom doors and she'll play with Howard and the other children that enter the theater. In the tunnels beneath the theater sits a spirit named Odie. Odie's spirit may appear from time to time and when it does, he sits still in the prison or chain gang attire always sitting as if he feels defeated in the tunnels underneath the theater and wishing to be left alone. Of all the spirits I had the pleasure of communicating with, Odie is the only one who chose not to communicate in regards to his story. However, he will be respectfully recognized as part of history within the construction of the Bellevue Theater, now known as Rapids Theater. Because of Howard's close association with the Harmony Shop that once stood next door, his spirit is often found in the basement of the Rapids Theater today. Reports of hearing keys jingling, whistling, banging in the bathroom, and on occasions following guests from the Rabbit's home are all linked to Howard and his friendly disposition. Walter is often seen walking back and forth on the upper balcony, providing him full view of the theater. Occasionally, he'll make himself known by clinging glasses from the top of the balcony or turning on the beer taps. He still roams the back office area overseeing and making sure everything is up to standards, and sometimes he'll even jam the printer if he disagrees with an upcoming event or plans that will be occurring in the theater. Alice, however, is by far the most prominent spirit within the walls of the Rapids Theater as far as I'm concerned. Over a hundred years later, as I stated previously, to me she is recognized as a very caring and loving woman that has assisted in the narration of these stories told in regards to this historic building. She's also offered some insights in regards to the ending of her own story. She shared that Michael, in fact, did survive the war and returned to face Alice's tragic departure. She also stated it took him close to a decade to find another companion and recognizes that he named his first daughter in memory of his first love. There are reports within the theater of hearing crying and screaming and on occasion even vomiting within the bathroom areas. All of that is just residual energy left over from such trauma and sadness that had occurred throughout the years within this theater. Alice has also given a glimpse into the future plans with the theater and its own evolution. She stated that there is a cycle with the theater that it has gone through and will continue to go through every 38 years. She says by the year 2035, it will reach yet another manifestation. What that holds, we'll have to wait and see. However, for 136 years, these amazing six spirits had such a strong connection with the property and the building. Perhaps now that their stories have been told, they may finally rest in peace. I remember when I finished this documentary, it literally brought me to tears. I felt such an immense amount of gratitude from those six spirits for telling their story in such a respectful way. And after such an honor to be the voice of those six amazing souls within the Rapids Theater, it was about six months later in February of 2020, I decided to expand myself yet again. And I changed the name of my business and what I offer therein to Village Roots, including the addition of my logo, which is now the Tree of Life. I'd be lying if I said I knew why I chose the Tree of Life. 
at the time I didn't. I just found it appropriate. Nonetheless, I decided to take this leap because throughout the years I had learned so much in regards to the tools that we have available to help us recognize the gifts that sometimes will lay dormant within us, tools that can be extremely helpful in the realization of our own God-given abilities. And at the time, this just surpassed the many years and experiences with self-taught tarot and using playing cards to validate, but not for long as you'll soon see. So it was at this time in 2020 I realized the request for spiritual techniques and tools became more and more of a demand and I decided after this experience with the documentary I was going to incorporate all of the tools including mentorship and meditation techniques for spiritual sustainability of the self into my business along with readings. And this was the birth of Village Roots. And the friend is like, mm-hmm. 